Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Sydney Opera House for our panel discussion this afternoon, Israel and Palestine in the New Middle East. I'm Anne Mossop. I'm going to be chairing the session this afternoon, um, and it's my great pleasure to welcome our panel here from near, from near and far um, to talk to us about this, uh, this topic today. Um, it's great to see so many people here. I always love it when you know people have come in from the, sun, the, the infrequent sunshine outside to see that actually there are some more important things to do. Um, so thank you very much for coming. Um, in recent months, we've seen the political fundamentals that have underpinned the Middle East for decades shift very dramatically with what is being referred to as the Arab Spring, first Tunisia and Egypt, and then as months go by, you know, a whole sequence of different events happening to, to, to the degree where I think every day the situation shifts. Obviously most acute and dramatic at the moment in Libya, in Syria, in Bahrain. So um, it, it seemed that the opportunity of visits by Sari Maktasi and Naomi Hazan were a really good opportunity to talk about how this changing background um, impacts on, on what is happening in, in Israel and Palestine and to look at that situation in the context of a very changed, um, shifting landscape. So this is a discussion about possible futures for Israel, for Palestine, in the context of this change. I'm sure that we'll be talking about some of those uh, bread and butter issues uh, that always come up of the Arab-Israeli con conflict, about the manoeuvring of current uh, Israeli and Palestinian factions, politicians, and so on. Um, but um, I've also asked our panellists really to look at the significance of the current moment um, and the potential that it represents for uh, things to go forward to some kind of resolution, things to go backwards, um, things to take whatever shape they may. We're very lucky to have these four panellists with very different perspectives. Um, and one speaking from an Israeli perspective, one from a Palestinian perspective, two Australians, one a journalist, one an academic, um, and they're all people who, as well as the, the, the work that they do, very much have a focus on speaking to broader audiences and engaging in public debate and discussion. So we have people who are not sitting in their respective ivory towers. I think three professors. Peter, I'm sorry, you must be feeling a bit left out in, in that respect. Um, but people who are really committed to being part of the debate. Uh, Professor Naomi Hazan is an Israeli academic, politician and human rights activist. She's a former Deputy Speaker of the Senate and served three terms as a member of the Knesset on behalf of the Meretz Party, um, concluding in 2003. She's also had a distinguished academic career um, in comparative African and Israeli politics and is the author of eight books and the Dean of the School, and Government, uh, School of Government and Society at the Academic College of Tel Aviv-Yafo. She's also currently, and perhaps this is the role in which most of you may have seen her speak, the president and chair of the New Israel Fund, an organisation that works to develop civil society organisations that work on issues including civil and human rights, equality um, in Israel, and an organisation that describes itself as dedicated to a vision of Israel as both a Jewish homeland and a shared society at peace with itself and its neighbours. Next, we have Peter Harcher, who's the international and political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and a visiting fellow at the Lowy Institute for International Policy. He's a regular and influential commentator on international affairs and was the Asia-Pacific editor for the Australian Financial Review before coming to his current position at the Herald and um, winner of Australian Journalism's most significant award, the Gold Walkley Award. He's the author of Bubble Man, Alan Greenspan and the Missing $7 Trillion and the very influential quarterly essay, 
of which the title is, is one that I've always been very fond of, Bipolar Nation, How to Win the 2007 Election, and to the bitter end, the dramatic story of the fall of John Howard and the rise of Kevin Rudd, which even though published very recently, now seems so many political <coughs> cycles ago. <laughs> Um, earlier this year, Peter travelled to Israel and Turkey to look at the impact um, in these countries of the Arab Spring and published a number of articles looking at the views of opinion makers in Israel on those external circumstances um, and, and what impact they thought they would have on the peace process. So he'll be also bringing us um, that perspective. Dasan Haj is the Future Generation Professor of Anthropology and Social Theory at the University of Melbourne, the author of White Nation and Against Paranoid Nationalism, Searching for Hope in a Shrinking Society, um, and a great contributor to debates on nationalism and intercultural relationships, intercultural relations both in Australia and in the Middle East. His current research looks at political emotions about the Israeli-Arab conf conflict among Muslim immigrants in the Western world, um, and he was also one of the speakers um, in a recent series of lectures in the subsequent book put together by Raymond Gator on Gaza, morality, law and politics. So he comes at these issues from a number of different um, academic and political perspectives. Sari Maktasi um, is a literary critic uh, of Palestinian and Lebanese background, currently professor of English and comparative literature at the University of California, Los Angeles. As a literary critic by day, uh, he specialises in 18th and 19th century British literature and is the author of uh, Romantic Imperialism, Universal Empire and the Culture of Modernity, and William Blake and the Impossible History of the 1790s. So just that he doesn't get, so that he doesn't get too relaxed in the beautiful world of ideas, he also writes about contemporary, <coughs> the contemporary Arab world and is the author of Palestine Inside Out, An Everyday Occupation, which has recently uh, been published in a new and updated edition. Our aim this afternoon is to hear from these different perspectives, from international relations to civil society, day-to-day -day life under occupation, political emotions, and to enjoy what happens when these perspectives clash and draw out intense or unintense discussion. Um, some of these, three of these people were on a, in, a, in part of a discussion um, uh, a couple of days ago at the University of Melbourne's Festival Ideas, and I think the consensus was that maybe that was a little bit too intense, so that we're hoping that our venue today may infuse a bit of showbiz joie de vivre, and that if it all gets too much for us all, we will revert to a conversation about cooking and com comparative hummus recipes, I think, is going to be the topic of the day. Um, from experience, I know that no discussion on these kind of issues pleases everyone and that we will have as many, if not more, points of view in the audience and passionate feelings as we have on the stage today. Um, when Hassan was introducing his lecture at the series Gaza Morality, Law and Politics, um, he talked about how in discussions of the um, uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, politics colonises everything. Um, and it's very, that it's very hard to actually make people think about the issues that you're talking about. But I'm hoping that that's what we can actually do today, is get some different perspectives that we, wouldn't, we, we, we don't have access to in Sydney every day, and, and think about some of these issues in a different way and have a bracing uh, and interesting conversation. Before we get underway, quite enough from me. I intend to say nothing else for the rest of the session other than repeating your questions. But I do want to very much thank the University of Melbourne's Festival Ideas, which has made possible the visit of Naomi Hazan and Sari Maktasi to Sydney. So we're going to start off by hearing um, for, for, for five minutes or so um, from each speaker a snapshot of their view on the issues in the region and the impact of the Arab Spring. And we're going to start with a big picture view from Peter Harcher. Uh, 
Thanks, Anne. Um, I don't have an ivory tower. I feel very inadequate. All I have is a small pile of yellowing news clips. Uh, but since I know even less about cooking uh, than I do about the New Middle East, I'll, I'll, give, it a, I'll give it a slash. Um, I wanted to start with the, uh, what seems to me to be the broadest uh, equity, uh, the broadest interest that is, is running in the New Middle East. Uh, and that is uh, the human spirit and the human condition. And it seems to me that after a 40-year holiday from history, the great stasis of the Middle East has come to an end. <coughs> the number of democracies in the world trebled in the last 40 years and human freedom flourished on every continent except in the Middle East where it remained frozen in time. The, it seemed such an aberration uh, that people started to come up with explanations for why it wasn't an aberration but was in fact the normal condition and came up with what now is clearly an outrageous theory that uh, Arabs are somehow uh, uh, genetically or, or ethnically disposed to uh, enjoying autocracy and loving the people who oppressed them. Uh, obviously, this has now been exposed as complete bunkum. Um, it turns out that it is, a, in fact, a universal yearning uh, for freedom, and this isn't just uh, now manifesting in the Middle East. The reaction in Beijing has been uh, <laughs> very revealing. The overreaction of the Chinese security authorities to phantom gatherings of non-existent protesters uh, where they've set dogs and policemen with batons on, um, on journalists who are there to record protests which weren't happening. Uh, the, the alacrity of the crackdown... On, uh, on all forms of dissent, the preemptive arrests of dissidents, uh, artists, uh, has been truly uh, revealing about the uh, paranoia or perhaps just well-placed fearfulness at the centre of the Chinese state. China today contains just over half of all the people in the world now uh, who are living under autocracies. Um, and that proportion living in China, uh, the proportion of all uh, oppressed people living in China has risen by a couple of percentage points if you count, uh, if you count uh, Egypt, Tunisia, as Yemen as newly liberated from autocracy, although it may be a bit early to make that call. Um, but where will we end, of course? Will it end in freedom or new repression? We don't know. I also just wanted to touch on a couple of other uh, more particular equities that I think are at play and are in a very interesting state uh, at the moment. Um, and I'll, I'll just glance over these. There's a lot to be said, but uh, there's lots of people to say it, so I'll just glance over these. There are clear implications for the state of world power. Uh, we see, uh, with, for example, uh, with Egypt moving from its uh, previous state as a US proxy to some more independent entity... <coughs> Who knows exactly how independent? We'll find out. But at the moment, it looks like a clear weakening of the US uh, grip on the region through its 50-year-old uh, uh, proxy strategy. Uh, and that, in turn, has implications for Israel and obviously increases Israeli vulnerability without um, the, the, uh, the continued strength of its great protector and ally. Uh, also, with the US at the same time, coincidentally, is losing both its will to wage war and the money with which to wage war. Only yesterday, the outgoing US Defence Secretary, Robert Gates, 
said, I'm getting really tired of wars of choice. Uh, he may have been referring to the Iraq war there. We don't know, but he was certainly referring to the Libyan intervention. Um, there are new opportunities there, too, for rising powers as U.S. power recedes. Uh, ambitious rising powers in the region include Turkey and Iran. Um, and the, the current status also increases the obvious contradiction of existing, the remaining autocracies, uh, perhaps none <coughs> more starkly than Saudi Arabia. And tied up in that particular Gordian knot, of course, is the future of oil and the price of oil in the world economy. The implications for Islam. Uh, Islam, which has obviously been hijacked by violent terrorist movements. Uh, if, peoples are now, if Islamic peoples are now freer to express their own rights and demands directly, then there's less appeal uh, for some sort of uh, proxy uh, guerrilla uh, terrorist movement to express... Uh, to pretend to express their uh, aspirations on their behalf. Perhaps this will be the beginning of allowing Islam to find its own level uh, in the Middle East, much as we've seen it uh, quite happily, I think. I think it's been a happy experience in Indonesia with the end of, uh, of autocracy in Indonesia, seeing Islam find its own level in Indonesian society. It's been a fascinating experience. Then, of course, there are the more particular implications for the Arab world itself, um, there's a uh, professor of Arabic studies at um, Oxford, uh, Eugene Rogan, who has a quote that I quite uh, liked where he said, uh, in the end, the past six decades of autocracy might well be remembered as but a setback in two centuries of political pressure for constitutional rule and democratic rights in the Arab world. Uh, and then, of course, the implications as we move the focus down and down to more particular stakes, equities and players for the Palestinians, uh, can the initial lurch towards uh, a reconciliation of the two Palestinian warring factions of Hamas and Fatah actually work? Uh, and even if it can, uh, they then intend to go to the UN General Assembly later this year and declare unilaterally, declare uh, the existence of a Palestinian state. Um, so if so, the Palestinians are on the move. But to where? Uh, even if most of the countries in the world will acknowledge a Palestinian state as an independent, new sovereign entity, what's the meaning of this if uh, the US will veto any meaningful action in the UN Security Council? What's the meaning of this if Israel doesn't allow any changes on the ground in, on, in the realities of daily life there? Perhaps the Palestinians are on the move into a cul-de-sac We'll see. For Israel, it seems to me at the moment, is stuck in the headlights of an onrushing history. Uh, it seemed to me that Obama was, in his speech a few weeks ago, trying to jolt Netanyahu into taking some sort of initiative uh, on a, a peace initiative with the Palestinians. Um, instead, we see Netanyahu playing what I think is a very small frame game, uh, more concerned with preserving a fragile coalition uh, uh, in government to hold power than to take the risk of making some sort of bold peace initiative. It's been pointed out that of the 11 prime ministers that Israel has had, uh, five have had a second chance at the job. Uh, Netanyahu is one of those five. None of those five have had a third chance at the job. 
and uh, I'm sure this has occurred to Netanyahu. Um, so it seems to me that um, uh, Netanyahu and therefore Israel is missing an opportunity to shape its own destiny in this very fluid moment. And finally, a couple of thoughts about the Australian interest, the parochial local interest. Excuse me, guys, while we just descend into the local for a second. But um, historically, Australia's interests and activities and actions in the Middle East have been led by our great power allies, first Britain, of course, and now the US uh, since World War II. When the Americans go to war in the Middle East, we go to war in the Middle East. It's been automatic. And I think it will remain so uh, for quite some time yet. However, if the US is less likely, less interested, and less able to fight wars in the Middle East, that means we too will be going to war less, uh, less often. Even without the US uh, leading interests uh, and military actions in the Middle East, Australia nonetheless has uh, continuing uh, running interests and equities in the Middle East. Some obvious ones, uh, oil um, and energy prices generally, which all tr uh, uh, tend to move with the oil price. Uh, trade, capital flows. Um, the, the public secret, this has been announced by the, the, the Rudd government and, and the Gillard government, and yet seems to have gone completely unregistered in the Australian public consciousness. Australia now has a permanent military base in the United Arab Emirates, Previously, Australia would go to war uh, with the US or the Brits in the Middle East and then, and then pull out. We're not a Middle East power. We don't have a permanent interest. Um, about three years ago, Australia gave up the pretense uh, and said, oh, bugger it, We're, we seem to be going here, coming here so often to picnic, we may as well set up a permanent tent, and, um, and, uh, and, and Australia has. There are now 500 Australian personnel and a bunch of defence materiel positioned permanently in the UAE. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's Australia's historically supportive relationship with Israel. Uh, and finally, uh, the uh, Australian interest in cooperative solutions to global problems uh, also will continue to rest uh, with... I mean, there's a lot of countries in the Middle East and there's a lot of votes around the table to be had. How does Australia advance its interests and pursue its interests in the Middle East uh, with a weaker US hand and a weaker US direction? Uh, we see the beginnings of it already in, in what Kevin Rudd is doing. Uh, Rudd is, is, is running a newly activist uh, policy in the Middle East. He's uh, trying to strike up uh, more direct relationships with the countries of the region. In particular, he's put a big em emphasis on Turkey as a country with which Australia can deal. Um, and he is, uh, we've seen him uh, helping to lead global action on an intervention in Libya. Uh, and we now see him out the front of the pack trying to lead international intervention in Syria uh, at a time when the, no other Western power is really terribly interested. Rudd is agitating for intervention. So it's, it's a very fluid moment, full of possibility, full of risk, uh, covering almost every possible implication <coughs> of world power from the very top to the very bottom. And I'll leave it there. Wow. <laughs> that is a terrible force. Thank you, Peter. I think he's opened the door for, for, for a, lot of, a lot of conversation. Hassan, over to you. Thanks, Anne. Uh, the first thing I, I, I just want to say is that I think uh, it is very important for you as listeners to listen in a very specific way to, to what is going on here. 
uh, in the sense that the last thing you should be uh, doing is kind of like listen as if the Middle East show at the Opera House. We're going to enjoy a little bit of a Middle East conflict at the Opera House. Isn't that exciting? And then we can go home and say, wow, we experienced a little bit of Middle East conflict. We're glad we're not there, but at least we've experienced it. And now we can have a really amazing sort of like uh, dinner party conversation with a touch uh, more realism, if you like. I think uh, when we debate the Middle East here, there's something serious going on. Uh, the Middle East affects our lives all the time. Uh, not just by the fact that there are, there's a Jewish diaspora and there's an Arab diaspora and a Palestinian diaspora, that uh, its politics affects our lives all the time. Uh, international politics affects our lives. But I think we have to think also that because it affects our lives, we can affect it. We actually can make choices, even if they are very minimal, we can make choices that have an impact on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, 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 these choices that we make do not have to be choices made via the state. They can be made via the state. So in the future, soon in the future, there's going to be a vote about, uh, about uh, in the UN, about uh, acknowledging the existence of a Palestinian state. How will Australia vote is an issue. How we influence that vote is an issue. So we can make decisions via the state. But there are also decisions that can be made outside of the framework of the state. Uh, the nation state and the legal frameworks of the nation state have not delivered much in the history of this conflict. Regardless of whether you agree, for instance, with the Marrickville Council taking an initiative in international politics, you cannot realistically tell this council it's none of your business to engage in international politics. Because if you do, you want to say, well, that's why do you need to? Since nation states are doing so well solving the conflict. <laughs> well, they're not. The nation state throughout their history have delivered crisis upon crisis, disaster upon disaster. They want to keep on making decisions, fine, but no one can sit and pontificate with a sense that, oh, I've got all this achievement behind me, I can lecture you. No, they've got zero achievement behind them as far as the history of the Middle East conflict is concerned. So your decisions are important. Now I want to talk about how to think for us Australians about the Middle East conflict. 
And there are certain, I don't think I would be stretching your imagination much in saying that there are some basic structural features of Australian society that are quite similar to the features of uh, the Israeli state as it exists today. Israel is a state founded on the dispossession and ethnic cleansing of substantial areas of where Palestinians lived, kicking quite a lot of Palestinians out of Palestine, killing some, etc. We've done that in Australia. We have founded a state on the dispossession of people on uh, their forced removal, on their killing. So there are certain similarities to begin with. And so I want to invite you, I'm not saying it's the same, but just think with those similarities to try and understand how you can think about the Middle East with a certain sense of intimacy, if you like. Take the apology to the indigenous people that Rudd delivered. Some people said, like Howard said, this was not enough, as this was too much indeed, that the apology was not needed, in fact, that what was needed was practical things. What was needed was, in a sense, to think we need to treat each other as equal. We need to recognize each other's differences. We need uh, to have, to ensure that everyone has equal opportunity in Australian society. That's fine. I think if you're an indigenous person and someone says to you, we want to treat you as equal, we want uh, to recognize your difference, and we want to make sure you have equal opportunity. You're not going to say, no. No, I don't want to. But, of course, a history of dispossession, a history of ethnic cleansing, requires more than this. You cannot just say, let's forget the past. The past is in the future. When you have situations, societies based on dispossession, killing, etc., you, you are left with populations that suffer, that suffer from a psychological wound, that suffer from economic dispossession, and that suffer from social disintegration. And what is important is not to set one against the other, not to say, okay, I'm going to now believe in the equal right of everyone, but I want to forget about the past. I want to believe in the equal right of everyone, but I want to forget about your psychological wounds. I want to, forget, I want to apologize, so I'll deal with your psychological wounds to a, little, a little bit, but I don't want to recognize that you need economic reparation. I recognize you need economic reparation, but I don't want to deal with your social disintegration. No, you cannot. You have to deal with everything. You have to provide equality of opportunity. You have to recognize the psychological wound. You have to recognize the economic dispossession and provide reparation. And you have to deal with the social integration, disintegration that is affected. 
You cannot choose one to mystify and not deal with the other. And that is crucial when we think about Israel-Palestine today. I think, first, I am very much for a discourse of equality, very much for a discourse of mutual recognition, very much for the right of the Jewish uh, population that exists in today's Israel to remain in Israel, have its rights, and be protected, and for the Palestinians to have their right and be protected. <coughs> but I don't choose this to mystify and say, Okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to deal with the fact that you are psychologically wounded. I'm not going to deal with the fact that you have been dispossessed by the fact that there's refugees that need... Everything needs to be dealt with. Everything needs to come at the table. Then we can start being realistic. It's not realism to start by something and forget about something else. That's the first important thing. The second thing I said, and I chose my words very carefully, I said, I recognize the right of the Jewish population that lives on the land of Israel today to have its rights to be, uh, to have a safeguarded existence and to have its existence and well-being secured. I don't believe that means that a Jewish state is the answer. I don't necessarily believe I want to recognize the right of a Jewish state. I don't want to believe the right of a Palestinian state. I'm not sure a state is the answer. I, what I know is that I don't want the Palestinians to suffer anymore. I don't want uh, their rights to be negated. I want refugees to be at least recognized and dealt with. I want uh, the economic situation of the refugees to be dealt with, the economic dispossession to be dealt with, and reparations to be. But why should I think that state is the answer? I'm not sure. This state has not delivered much we have a region which was much more thriving when it wasn't a state. It was a region historically which had a multiplicity of communities. It had a multiplicity of ways of life. And they lived to together. It wasn't a state. And they lived together. Why should we now think that only a state Palestinian state, Jewish state, whatever state you like, is the answer. If we were in the 19th century and the state was on the upper and it was the future of humanity, I'm happy to be realistic and say, okay, everybody's becoming state, the state is the answer. But we are in 21st century, the era of the decline of the nation state. <coughs> Why? If I want to think about a better future, do I want to constrict myself with something as archaic as the nation state? It is a region 
which has the possibility of offering us maybe something completely new. Now, for those of you, and I'm sure there will be some, who will be looking at me and thinking, ha, 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 poor idealist guy. <laughs> he doesn't know what he is talking about. Look at him. He's ascending from Mars and no sense of realism. <coughs> well, I tell you, what has your realism achieved? Why do you think you are being much more realistic by restricting your imagination to something which has delivered nothing but misery? Free your imagination and you will find yourself being much more realistic than many people who claim to be realistic and only produce bad futures, both in Palestine and here. Thank you. Well, I thought it might take us a little while to get around to some of those issues, but we've jumped right into the middle of it. Um, and I'll hand over to Naomi Hazan uh, uh, to, to talk to us from her perspective. Uh, thank you very much, Anne, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, since the sun is shining in Sydney, and since I've been in Australia, that's a rarity. I'm not, I, I'm not sure what you're doing here, but I'm very much pleased that you are. Uh, Two introductory remarks, please, uh, just to set the stage. Sarai and Hassan and Hassan and I appeared at the University of Melbourne a couple of days ago, and Sarai and I were sitting next to each other, and there's clearly a Palestinian-Israeli affinity because we both came down with sore throats and a head cold. <laughs> so I... Uh, apologize if I'm uh, sound a bit uh, throaty, but I, I'm sure we'll get over that. Uh, the second caveat is, uh, frankly, I'm not sure there's one Israeli viewpoint. I'm not sure there's one Palestinian viewpoint. I, I uh, want to position myself before I continue to make it very clear where I'm coming from and then do a, a an analysis that dovetails at points with what we've just heard and diverges at other points from what we've just heard. I uh, have been for my entire adult life, and I think maybe for my entire life, uh, very much rooted <coughs> in a concept of Israel as the sovereign expression of the right of self-determination of the Jewish people and as a country that guarantees full rights to all its citizens. And it is the combination of two that has guided me, a collective right to self-determination and an absolute commitment and dedication almost on a daily basis to human rights, for all Israel citizens, and that means combating discrimination where it exists, fighting prejudice, seeking equality, and achieving justice. And, and in one form or another, and 
also when I was in the academic world and also when I was in the political world. And now that I am on a daily basis engaged in struggles in civil society, that is my belief. That's where I'm coming from. I represent many Israelis, but not all Israelis, just as I'm sure Sari represents many Palestinians, but not all Palestinians. And having said that, I want to address Anne's questions and some of the remarks we've heard. I'll do it almost in telegraphic form uh, in order to arouse a real discussion. I'm not sure we need a debate here. What we need is a discussion and understanding. And most importantly, what we need is results. I cannot recall a period in recent history that has so many opportunities for the resolution of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict as this period that we are now living in. I think it's amazing. Because of the fluidity, because of the openness, and yes, because of the uncertainty that arouses many fears, this is a period of great opportunity, immense opportunity. It is not just the Arab Spring and the revival of the Arab Peace Initiative, which is very important, and the existence of a near international consensus on a two-state solution, on a viable, contiguous, just Palestinian state alongside Israel, but also there are clear majorities, both in Israel and in Palestine, for a two-state solution. In other words, there is a confluence now that we have not had easily in the past 20 years to move forward and to actually achieve a durable and lasting resolution to the conflict, which will end the occupation by Israel of Palestinian territories and free Israel from occupying another people and guarantee Israel's security for the future. It's amazing. But the key question is, the key question is, will we be able to do this? Will we be able to take control of our destiny and move forward? Now, in order to do that, the first thing we have to do is address the obstacles that have prevented us from reaching such a resolution in the past. And I'm sure all of you have thought of numerous obstacles. I simply want to raise five that I think are the most important. The first at the most profound level is that we have very different versions of the past and of history, of the roots of the conflict. Extraordinarily different versions. You just heard Hassan's version. In a few minutes, you will hear Sari's version. It diverges from the version of the roots of the conflict that I grew up with. 
But as I've gotten a little bit older, and mark my words, a little bit older, not much more than that, I've also come to realize that arguing over narratives very quickly deteriorates into a blame game. And I think most of us are much too mature to engage in a blame game. What we have to do is something much more difficult, and that is acknowledge that in one form or another we share responsibility for the situation we are in, which we all find untenable. So the first obstacle is how we deal with the roots of the conflict, and I agree entirely. We cannot ignore them, but we have to remember that we are, all of us, somewhat responsible for them. The second obstacle It's a great obstacle. You recognize it. Each of us, Palestinians and Israelis, have our share of spoilers. These are great people's spoilers. They're a minority. They have tried time and again to impose a veto power. On the Israeli side, there are those who still believe in the idea of a greater land of Israel where there are no Palestinians. And talking about blind, that's blind. And on the Palestinian side, there are those who dream of a greater Palestine with no Jews. And that too is blind. And together they have been responsible for the ongoing occupation on one side and the continuation of violence on the other side, and that is inhuman. Third obstacle, and the one I I frankly know least how to deal with, is, you know, we have been trying for the past 20 years and some of us for 40 years and a bit longer, and a bit longer, but we haven't succeeded. And that has raised frustration and animosity and fear and despair. And when you have tried and tried again, you're not always sure that you shouldn't just stop trying. And that worries me, by the way, also as a feminist, because we women know we keep trying until we succeed. But fighting the despondency is something, I think, that is absolutely imperative. That has led, frankly, to a fourth obstacle, and that is the notion that if we are as we are, many of us, driven by values, basic human values, and a belief in human rights and individual liberty and justice, 
then we should perhaps consider a one-state solution. A one-state solution, democratic, where all individuals are free. The only trouble with this very little liberal notion is that it entirely disregards the fact that peoples have and want the right to self-determination collectively. And the collective right to self-determination is sometimes within, yes, a separate state framework. The collective right to self-determination is the avenue to achieve and exercise human dignity and human liberty at the first state. But what worries me the most about the one-state solution is that, frankly, on the ground, it's a non-option at the moment. The alternative to a viable two-state solution today is destruction and institutionalized inequality and asymmetry and violence. It is so inhumane that it is indescribable. I don't think simply on a human basis that we should consider it as a realistic option because it is not. If we don't have a two-state solution, we will deteriorate into mutual destruction of the worst sort. And the final obstacle, very quickly, is that we have been... uh, how should I say it without sounding somewhat cynical, which I'm not, Uh, our leaders, and I will speak from our side, you reminded us that many of them have had two terms, but none three terms. I think sometimes leaders have to understand that they can come and go and maybe new ones will come in. But when it has come down to making a decision, neither side has been willing to go the extra mile. In other words, bogged down in details without the goodwill that is needed to protect each side. And I very much hope that with the opportunities that are being opened now, even those who have been considered recalcitrant leaders should understand that it is incumbent on them to make decisions now. So what are the prospects? We can, we should, and we must do what we should have done years ago. And that is support the creation of a Palestinian state alongside Israel. That is the correct thing to do for both peoples. It is the correct thing to do for all individuals. It is the only way to respect the dignity and the identity 
and the equality of the other. And it is not only an Israeli-Palestinian obligation, it is an international obligation. Because if we fail, you will have to deal with the consequences. But if we succeed, we can make this a much better world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And to Sari Maktasi. Um, there's a lot to add to what's been said so far, so let me just lay out some general points that I'd like to make, and then we can come back to some of these in the discussion afterwards. The first thing is to go back to the, the situation we're supposed to be talking about, which is, of course, the Arab-Israeli or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in the context of the Arab, the so-called Arab Spring, the uprisings that are taking place throughout the Arab world today, from the Gulf to North Africa. And what it's very important to point out uh, from somebody who knows Arabic is that I don't think it's a coincidence that the people who have been engaged in these uprisings from Egypt <coughs> to Tunis, Bahrain, Yemen, and so forth, Syria, have all been referring to the processes that they're engaged in as intifadas. I don't know how much that makes it into the English-speaking world, but they call them intifadas. And there are many reasons to call them intifadas. One of them is strictly a linguistic reason, because that's what it is. And secondly, there's a very important connection to the Palestinian intifada, the first one in particular, of the 1980s. So I think it's very important to point out that the Arab youths who have been suffering and struggling and sacrificing in the streets of Benghazi or Yemen or Damascus or whatever, all have a sense that they're linked together in a struggle and that their struggle is linked to the struggle that the Palestinian people have been engaged in for decades. In other words, it's kind of strange, but the Arab majority is actually coming late to the party, so to speak, that the, the Palestinians started decades ago, which is a struggle for rights of a democratic nature and self-determination. The Palestinian struggle is often represented as a struggle to end the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. And of course, those territories which were occupied in 1967 are a hugely important part of what the question of Palestine is all about. But it's always important to remember, in fact, it's crucial to remember, that only a minority of Palestinians actually live in the occupied territories. The majority of Palestinians live either as exiles or refugees because they were forced from their homeland during the creation of Israel in 1948, and that's the single largest group of Palestinians, are the ones who've been in exile for 60 plus years, or as second-class citizens of the state of Israel, to whom I want to return in a moment. So it's important to remember that the, the, if there's a link between the Arab uprisings that are taking place today and the Palestinian struggle, the link is that there's a movement towards democratic rights, democratic aspirations, and self-determination. Not for some Palestinians at the expense of others, but for all Palestinians. They all want the same thing, fundamentally. And I think their Arab uh, 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 compatriots, or their, their Arab brothers and sisters, or however you want to put it, understand that and, and, and reflect that back to them. So the Palestinian struggle is a three-way struggle. First of all, it's a struggle to end the occupation 
of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, and to, to end the, 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 the nature of life under occupation, which is simply insupportable, even though it's gone on for more than four decades. It's perhaps centrally a struggle for the right of return of those who were expelled from their homeland in 1948 and their descendants who have, and I want to emphasize this point, an inalienable human right that resides in them as human beings, as individuals and as families, to return to the land from which they were cleansed in 1948. That's not a right that's going to go away. It's not a right that can be negotiated away. It's a fundamental, inalienable human right. And it's a legal right as well. And thirdly, they're struggling for the rights of Palestinians who live inside the state of Israel. So it's a three-way struggle, all linked together for the ultimate aim of self-determination and, and freedom of expression and so forth. The, the occupation is generally known. I'm not going to talk about it much now. We can come back to it if you'd like to. The right of return, I think people understand in principle. I want to emphasize, though, that for, from, from the perspective of most Palestinians, that is, most who are in exile, the right of return is not simply a card you put on the table and you see what's going to happen with it and so forth. It's a fundamental right. It's not negotiable. This is a fundamental human right to go back to the land from which you were expelled. It's not negotiable. I want to spend most of my time today talking about the Palestinians inside Israel, though, because they're the least understood and, in many senses, the most important part of this entire complex. Uh, Naomi referred to Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, and I'm sure you've all heard that slogan before. It's kind of Israel's carrying card, if you want. It's a slogan that is, if you think about it, and most people don't think about it, that's the nature of slogans, they sort of stop us from thinking. It's fundamentally a contradiction in terms, Jewish and democratic state. It would not be a contradiction in terms if everybody in the state were Jewish. If everybody was Jewish, it's a democratic state, no problem. Jewish and democratic state, sure, makes sense. 20%, and it's a growing ratio, so right now it's 20%, of the population of Israel within its pre-67 borders are Palestinian Muslims and Christians. They're not Jews. So when you tell them you live in a Jewish state, that's one thing. You tell them you live in a democratic state, that's something else. They're not the same thing. And to conflate those two is something that liberal Israelis in particular have been able to use to reassure themselves to assuage their own consciences, really, that everything is okay, it's a democratic state, and so on and so forth. It's not. It, can't, it just can't be when you yoke it to an ethnic or religious identity. And you just, this is not rocket science. Just think about it for a second yourselves. You'll come to the same conclusion. The fundamental issue here is that in order to try to maintain the pretense that this is a Jewish state, in a land that is not now and has never historically been exclusively Jewish. It has always been a land of many identities, many cultures, many faiths, many languages. To try and make it a state with one identity necessarily involves, it has always involved, it always will involve violence. Because that's, what you, that's how you turn multiplicity into singularity. That's how you turn heterogeneity into homogeneity. You've got to get rid of the things that don't fit. Either you put them under the carpet or you expel them or you lock them up or you do whatever it takes because that's how the logic works fundamentally, a, a monocultural logic. I want to say a few things about the rights of Palestinians who live inside the state because this is the least understood part of the, of the problem, as I said before. 
the Israeli state makes a distinction between citizenship and nationality. And this is not just sort of a political science kind of distinction. What that means is that Israel considers itself to be, and Naomi will say this, I'm sure, the state of the Jewish people. So the nation to which the state claims to correspond is not the people who live there, its own citizens, let alone the millions of people whose lives it actually runs, including Palestinians in the occupied territories. It's the Jewish people wherever they are in the entire world. What that means is that citizenship in Israel is a lesser category than nationality. So what that means is somebody who is Jewish, who is not a citizen, actually in many instances has rights that a citizen who is not Jewish does not have, which as far as I know is unique in the entire world, which is a really important point. Lots of rights in Israel, access to land, for example, access to other kinds of rights, go according to your national identity, which, and the state thinks of Jewishness as a national identity. And so if you're Palestinian, even if you're a citizen, even if you were born there, even if your family going back generations is from there, you're not a member of the nation, you're out of luck. You don't fit, fundamentally. That's 20% of the population within the 67 borders, not to mention the millions living in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. Fundamental rights, such as the right to access land, are regulated according to people's ethnic or religious or, as the state has it, national identity. So if you're a Palestinian and you want to live in a certain area within the borders of the state, if you turn to what's called state land, which makes up 93% of the land within Israel, state land is run by organizations like the Jewish National Fund, which perfectly openly, go to its website, you see what they say, don't trust me, go to the Jewish National Fund website. They say, we maintain the land of Israel in perpetuity for the Jewish people. Not for the citizens of the state, not for people whose land it actually was, but for the Jewish people. So what that means, if you're, if you're a Palestinian citizen of the state, you want to access land, and you go to land that's held by a state, a national institution like the Jewish National Fund, they'll tell you, sorry, you're out of luck. This isn't your land. This is the land of the Jewish people. So where is the Palestinian supposed to go? Palestinians have not been allowed to build one single new community inside the state since 1948, over a period in which the Israeli state has constructed 600-plus communities specifically for Jewish residents inside the state. So the largest growing segment of the population of the citizens within the state has extremely restricted housing rights, land rights, and one that's not growing, certainly not commensurate with the growth in population. Palestinian citizens who want to live, let's say, in what's called a Jewish community settlement that makes up over 80% of rural communities in, in, in Israel have to go through what's called an, ad an admissions committee to gain access to the land, which is in many cases their own ancestral land, of course, that was stripped from them by force in 1948. They're not able to because they don't meet the criteria of living on the land. I can give further example. I just want this to, this is a very important point because this is, all comes down to land fundamentally. There are other, other issues as well. I'll just wrap, wrap up quickly by pointing out a couple of other issues. There are two completely separate educational infrastructures inside Israel for citizens of the state. There's one infrastructure for Jewish students and another completely separate infrastructure for Palestinian citizens of the state. And they're completely unequal. Unequal. Israel spends three times as much educating a Jewish citizen 
as it does educating a Palestinian citizen. And there are many, many more examples of the kinds of schools you can go to and the kinds of arts thing you can get access to and so forth that, that Palestinians can't get access to, which I can go into at length if you want me to. And the last point I want to make is that this whole network of inequality among citizens of the state is cemented by the fact that inside Israel it is legally impossible for somebody who's Jewish to marry somebody who's not Jewish. It cannot be done according to the laws of the land. What that means is that there's an apartheid system with two separate populations living under totally separate and unequal infrastructural provisions. And they can't cross the boundaries that separate them legally because the state does not allow it fundamentally. So when we hear about a two-state solution, and in the, the ultimate fantasy version of the two-state solution, the Israelis withdraw to the 67 border, none of this stuff about land swaps. Forget that. Let's, let's imagine, if you want, for the sake of argument, the ideal two-state solution. The Israelis withdraw to the 1967 border. They give up all of East Jerusalem. They remove 500,000 Jewish settlers plus in the occupied territories. They dismantle all the settlements. They take away all their army outposts in the Jordan Valley. They pull completely out. A Palestinian state is created in the West Bank with Gaza, connected through tunnels and airspace and helicopters and hovercraft or whatever you want, and East Jerusalem. Does that end the conflict? The majority of Palestinians are still excluded. Their rights are still not addressed. Neither the majority, the largest single block, who are the refugees who have a right to return home because they're denied the right to return home under any formulation of the two-state solution anybody's ever talked about. And above all, in many senses, the rights of Palestinians who would remain inside Israel would not only be as bad as they are now, they'd be much worse than what they are now because the move to expel them, which is already very strong inside Israel, would be stronger because that state would be identified even more as a Jewish state. So there are huge dangers in a two-state solution. It seems to me that the only way to address this conflict and to end it once and for all with justice for all, which as far as I'm concerned is the single most important thing, is to make sure that everybody's fundamental rights are addressed. Not necessarily their desires and their fantasies and their wishes, their rights. Which is to say to protect the Jewish people of, who now live in Israel, the occupied territories, to ensure and safeguard their rights, to ensure and safeguard the rights of all Palestinians, the ones under occupation, the ones in exile who have a right to return, and the ones living now as second-class citizens inside Israel. They all have to have their rights addressed. There are many possible ways of trying to do that. The one that seems the most obvious in the immediate sense is what is referred to as the one-state solution, because that's the one that says a state would be constituted that grants full equality to all of its citizens. It doesn't distinguish among citizens according to race or ethnicity or religion or whatever. They're all equal. And you take it from there. That could, of course, take into, into account what, what Hassan was talking about in terms of imagining other ways of, of, of constituting uh, uh, polities and so forth, none of which I'm opposed to, of course. I'm totally open to that. But... It's what's fundamentally important is to remember that all peoples, not just some, have the same fundamental rights. That's what it means to live in a world of rights, after all. And we have to ensure, those of us who believe in rights, that everybody has the same rights. And as far as I'm concerned, addressing this conflict means addressing and recognizing and enacting and enabling those rights 
And that's, of course, exactly what the Arab Spring is all about. It's about rights. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sari, and, and, and to all our panelists for, for four uh, very interesting presentations of some of the issues. Um, uh, to open to discussion among our panel, I think we can possibly see that what we've had um, are two quite idealistic versions of possible futures, um, an idealistic two-state uh, version and an idealistic one, maybe a state, maybe some fabulous entity that we haven't even imagined um, <laughs> on this side. Um, and and to, to start up opening up that conversation a little bit, I would perhaps like to turn to uh, Naomi and to Peter to talk a little bit more about the situation in Israel in the first instance. Um, in that, um, Naomi, what you've presented us with is, is, is uh, a, a very um, compelling plea um, for, for a two-state solution. Um, but in many ways, that, even though there would be many people in Israel who would share that view, certainly it's not your views are, are not represented by a political majority by any means, um, and that there is a section of the community in Israel who are articulating that view, of, of whom you're obviously an eloquent member, but, um, but that, that would not be a that That's a view that you would be fighting to put across to the majority of people and certainly politicians in Israel, would it not? Uh, and thanks for the question. The truth of the matter is that 20, 30 years ago, I would agree with you. Mm. But, but today, 70% uh, of Israelis consistently in every single poll have embraced the two-state solution. And so I'm used to being in the minority, but in this case I'm simply not. I'm sorry. And, and if I can add another uh, uh, statistic, because uh, we do uh, joint polling with Palestinian pollsters, uh, over 60% of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank also embrace a two-state solution. So it's really very important uh, to get the proportions right here. There is nothing unusual about my position. It's a consensual, near consensual position in Israel. And, and maybe if I may, just two more sentences, because... Um, I have spent, oh, the last 30 years and, and, and very intensely during my period in parliament and my period working as president of the New Israel Fund, in order to achieve that equality and that democracy for all citizens of Israel. But because, uh, to the best of my knowledge, over 95% of the states in the world are multinational and multicultural states. We don't have mono-ethnic states anymore, definitely not those who can call themselves democracies. And democracies are judged first and foremost by how they treat their minorities. So it is absolutely important 
not important, it is vital, essential for Israel's democratic character and yes, for its Jewish character as well, to treat and guarantee all citizens' full rights. And we've heard some examples, and I happen to know those examples very well, because at least in several of the cases, I've been at the forefront of changing them. For example, at the forefront of the litigation by Arab civil society groups within Israel to ensure access to state land, which was sanctioned by the Supreme Court of Israel. I have been at the forefront of the struggle, very much so, for the equalization of Arab education. And by the way, we have four systems of education, three for Jews, never agree on anything, and, 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 and one system for Arab, which is, by the way, also governed by Arabs, and the best matriculation exam scores are from Arab schools, and some of the worst as well, and this is unacceptable. I can continue, but I think the point is, if I may, there seems to be agreement that we must end the occupation and establish a Palestinian state alongside Israel. There seems to be agreement that every state that calls itself a democracy has to pursue human rights for every single individual and group in its boundaries. And I actually enjoy myself, so I don't want to be tremendously contentious. But we don't uh, have agreement on one point. And that is, on the Palestinian right of return, or for that matter, on the full right of return of Jews to everywhere on the land. Because if we have a battle of rights, we will have a battle. And I would like to propose something totally different, something I've discussed with many Palestinian friends over the years. And that is, we are not contesting rights. The rights are acknowledged. But the fulfillment of these rights can and must be done in sovereign states. I think very much the Palestinians need a state, among other things, to realize the Palestinian right of return. And Israelis need a state to realize the Israeli rights. And I will give up the rights of segments of my family in Hebron. And I, many of my Palestinian friends are willing to give up the right to return to their homes in Jaffa or Talbiyah so that we will be able to live with each other. We are destined to live with each other. And most of us want just a decent, normal life, and it is doable. So nobody is contesting the right, but there are ways of guaranteeing the collective rights and 
not implementing certain ones. It's a non-starter. It is a prescription for future conflict. I'm very much afraid that we're looking for another excuse not to do what we have to do, and that is end this conflict now. I think, uh, I mean, perhaps my point about majorities and minorities was really about um, the proportion of politicians who shared your view of unconditionally back to pre-67 borders, which, which is a slightly different issue to, to the number of the number of people. Um, the number I of believe people in would the agree. power of people too. <laughs> well, we need an Israeli spring as yes, well. Yes, exactly. Um, but Peter, from your um, w- one thing that I noted from the, what you wrote on your return um, from a visit to Israel recently was um, a fairly gloomy view among among <coughs> power brokers in Israel about the impact of of um, um, what I think now I have been corrected. I probably should call the Arab intifadas rather than the Arab Spring. Um, and, and really feeling that uh, Israel was more under pressure because of the situation, um, that the changes in Egypt, w- again, weakened, weakened the position. Um, and so a real reassessing of, of, of where they stood. Um, what do you think of the reali- the, how, how realistic would be something like what Naomi is suggesting? Realistic is the key word you've just used. Yeah. I, I think, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the time of today's discussion, we've seen stuck on Naomi's, what you listed as obstacle number one, and that is the quick reversion to old narratives. Uh, the distinguishing feature of the current moment in world history is that there is a new fluidity and a new possibility. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's the distinguishing feature. The second, the second problem, I think, with today's panel discussion has been, um, maybe I should call it the Marrickville Council Syndrome. The Inner West Bank, and, as we call it. <laughs> yes. And, and, and by, by that I mean um, impossible, impossible uh, unrealism. Uh, uh, we, we need... If there's, if there's going to be any... Uh, if there's going to be any progress on this conflict, then you have to do two things. First, take advantage of the current new fluidity. And second, um, you need to deal realistically with it. Uh, Now, there is no such thing as a perfect solution to any conflict, uh, to any story where there have been invasions, where there have been movements of people, where there have been alternative settlements. Are we going to go to Japan today and tell the Japanese to give the right of citizenship to the Koreans who have been living there for four generations and still are not entitled to Japanese citizenship? Are we going to go to China and tell the Chinese to, to stop transshipping Han Chinese into Tibet uh, or into Xinjiang? Are we going to go to Indonesia and, and try and clean, cl- clear the, uh, the Javanese out of the Majuris and the Achenese uh, enclaves? Are we going to go to New Zealand and tell the New Zealanders to bugger off uh, and give it back to the Maori. There are no... Uh, what I'm trying to say here is we need to be realistic about current realities, current opportunities, and current power relations. This is the only realistic way of getting an improvement. Um, at the moment, we have uh, movement on the Palestinian side and no movement on the Israeli side. The movement on the Palestinian side is that uh, Fatah... Uh, and Hamas have 
agreed in principle to uh, end a four-year uh, uh, rift, a four-year war, really, and try and unite as a single Palestine to go to the United Nations Security, uh, to the United Nations General Assembly and seek a unilateral declaration of statehood to be uh, recognised by the world. On the other hand, we have an Israel that, although there are many voices in Israel calling for a peace uh, initiative from the Israeli government, we have a prime minister who's immovable. Uh, even the president of Israel has called for the, an urgent uh, and um, uh, uh, significant peace initiative from the Israeli government. Uh, so uh, the obstacles are that on the Palestinian side, the two warring factions can't agree on the specifics of how they, they will unite and are failing to come up with any specific uh, realistic power-sharing agreement. So that even the, even the one movement that we have had is stalled, troubled, and uh, with an uncertain future. And on the Israeli side, um, we saw an effort by Obama to stimulate uh, an Israeli proposal, and that failed. It failed because Netanyahu, as I said earlier, is protecting his uh, narrow political <coughs> interest rather than casting, in my view, to the wider national future. Uh, and we see his position buttressed against Obama's efforts by a United States Congress which uh, has, support, has taken the majority position in the US Congress <coughs> is to support the uh, incumbent Israeli president in whatever he wants to do, right or wrong, come hell or high water, is it some sort of definition of the American interest. Uh, now, that's the reality. Um, uh, the, the, the question is, how can the Palestinians um, uh, first speak with a united voice and second, try and deal realistically with Israel? They can go to the UN, as I said before, they can get recognition from most countries. That's, that's, that's one thing. Translating that into an actual change on the ground is utterly different. Step one will not lead to step, step two. It cannot. So that's, that's, the first, that's the first thing is the Palestinians. And the second is the Israelis. Now, the danger is that this opportunity is missed. The danger is that uh, from the, first from the, uh, from the Israeli side, uh, that Israel ends up um, being a price taker here. History is formed around it, uh, and history is acted upon Israel. Uh, perhaps the only specific concrete uh, decision the Israeli government has made in response to the Arab Spring has been to increase, uh, to order a review of the defence budget, uh, to in increase the, uh, uh, the defence fortifications uh, against attack. Now, um, that alone cannot constitute security for Israel. Israel needs diplomatic political action to shape a, secure, a security for itself. Uh, and that's obviously what's lacking. Now, it will, unless Israel can act to help creatively uh, shape its own destiny, then it, it will be a victim of the destiny that's handed to it. And there are limits to what even the US can do to defend a country uh, surrounded uh, by... Uh, uh, in what could well be a hostile force. Now, at the moment, the, one of the extraordinary things about this upri the uprisings in the Arab world is um, that Israel has not really been, has certainly not been the central issue at all. Um, it's been about people 
looking for solutions in their own countries from their own governments to their own problems. And, the, and uh, Israel, which has so often been waved in front of them as uh, a distraction from uh, their own domestic politics <coughs> by dictators who didn't want to have to deal with local <coughs> problems, that's not present at the moment. The danger for Israel is that Israel does become uh, the biggest issue. The danger for Israel is that somehow or another, who knows what the future of the, the Arab countries will hold, it's very fluid, somehow or another Israel becomes a unifying theme, a unifying point uh, uh, that, uh, that Israel makes itself or becomes the central uh, focus of political activity in the <coughs> Middle East. From the Palestinian side, the, the, the risk is uh, equally that they'll miss an opportunity to shape their own destiny. Uh, now, who knows? But if, if the only thing they can do, if the best that they can do is to form a united voice, appear before the United Nations and be granted recognition as a state, uh, that too will be a wasted opportunity because uh, that by itself will change nothing on the ground unless Israel recognises it. And Israel, of course, uh, has no interest in recognising that. Uh, and nor would the, would the US allow a United, Secu United Nations security resolution that it, it tried to enforce any such thing. So it's, it's pure fantasy to think that where we are at the moment will even begin to lead to uh, any real solution, much less uh, uh, taking the um, indulgence of this opportunity to revisit old grudges, old arguments, old narratives and delusions about... Uh, on a Marrickville Council scale about what may be able to be achieved. So uh, my, my view is that both parties are taking inadequate action at, in a framework that allows more fluidity, more freedom and more opportunity than we've seen in the lifetimes of anybody in this room. Well, it's over to the idealistic, this idealistic side of the room to respond um, to Peter's and uh, to both of both of those views. I mean, primarily, uh, I think I would be interested in hearing from 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 both either of you about um, uh, what you think about the reality argument. Um, well, okay. Uh, I give you. Uh, First, uh, I give you ontology 101. You don't mix between the concept of reality and actuality. <laughs> reality is not just what is actual, it's what's possible and what is even dreamable. <coughs> reality is not made out. The people who speak in the name of realism are people who are actualists who basically cannot see that reality unfolds in multiplicity of possibilities all the time. And it is those, this unfolding of multiplicity of possibilities that people who are realists but who take into account more than actuality can actually hold. So uh, idealism, uh, realism, I don't accept it. I think what you have here is actualism versus concentration on actual unfolding of possibilities. Then the issue of old... Explain it again. 
That, I say, that's a, uh, I'm becoming professorial now. It feels like a lecture. But, <laughs> but, but it's okay. It's just as long as people don't mix between the notion of what is actual and what is real. Because reality is not made out just of what is actual. Reality is constantly offering us possibilities. And you can put your gaze on the possibilities and be a realist just as much as the people who claim to be realists by simply concentrating on what is actual. The second very important thing to think about when I hear the term old, old narratives, I'm sorry here, Peter, I feel, I want to ask, but who are you to determine what is an old narrative? An old narrative an old narrative is not determined by someone outside. An old narrative can be a wound. A Palestinian refugee is not a narrative. It's a Palestinian refugee. <laughs> you don't consider it an old narrative. An old narrative, as far as I'm concerned, is something which does not still emotionally work people up. That's an old narrative. As long as the narrative moves people, as long as it shapes reality, it's the current narrative, and you have to take it into account if you are a realist. <laughs> and now, and from this perspective, I feel that the issue is, remains, that I want to center on, is the possibility of a social relation between Jewish and Palestinian people. It's not just enough to say the existence of this and the existence of that. I like what I said in the end about marriage. I like, when I hear marriage, I hear social relation. I hear the possibility of people interacting. And when people interact, of course, they, feel they need to feel safe in themselves and to interact. They, feel they have to feel some sense of justice, and then they interact. But if all their life is directed towards how to exist, how to protect their right from the other. If every single realistic plan made is how to protect me from the other, how to create a new border, how to make sure I don't interact with the other, what kind of realistic planning for the future is this? We plan for a future in which we instinctively don't like people who form ghettos. Yet, when we think of this, it is a policy, international policy of ghettos, and we clap our hand that it's realist, and sure, fair enough, it's okay to have a ghetto. No, it's not okay. It's okay to feel safe, but you have to interact with people, and you plan to feel safe and interact with people. And this is the future, how to establish a relation between Jewish and Palestinian people, not to just think about this and that and how they get their right and their right and their right. This is, to me, this is an old narrative. <laughs> really archaic. <clears throat> I'm tempted to follow my colleague here. I'm a professor too, so I can give a whole lecture about ontology, but I'm not gonna, there's a lot of things I have to say about Blake that actually really fit into this very well. <laughs> But I'm not going to go there because well, we can do that in tomorrow's class. No, really, seriously, the, a couple of things to be said about this. First of all, any time you hear somebody invoke realism, you have to be realistic. First of all, what 
inevitably, what they're invoking is the realism that is dictated by those who are in a position of power. True. That's all, it's all, invariably, throughout history, it's always been the case. You have to accept what we say. That's the realism. And if you don't, well, that you're, you're, some, you're a dreamer or you're weird or whatever. Okay, so call me a dreamer. I'm not going to accept what those who claim to be in a position of power tell me to do. I'm just not going to do what they tell me to do, period. And I'm, I'm not by any means unique in that. Most people aren't like that. That's the first thing. The second thing is, on the question of power and the real and the Arab Spring, just to refresh your memories, when the Intifadas began in Tunis and in Cairo and Alexandria and other places throughout the Arab world, those who were in a position of power who were talking about the real, and I mean the governments in Cairo or in Tunis or in Tel Aviv or in Washington or wherever, were all talking about a reality that had nothing to do with the reality that was unfolding on the streets. The point is that what happened in the Arab, what is happening, what happened and is happening in the Arab Spring is that we saw unfolding before our very eyes a new reality that people made happen even though the most powerful governments on the planet did not want it to happen, did not see it happening, had no idea what to do when it started happening, and it happened anyway. So realism and power don't necessarily mesh very well. That's a really important point. A final point, if I may, which is that, which is that um, the, if we look, if, we, if anybody who has any kind of social conscience, anybody who has fundamentally at heart fundamental human rights, which I personally think every human being should have because that's what makes us human in the end. It's what differentiates us from animals, is the notion of rights. Animals don't have rights in the sense among themselves we have rights. That's what humanity is after all. Anybody who has a social conscience has to remember that throughout human history there have been situations where people are being abused by those in a situation of power. And those situations have never changed by people just saying, there's nothing we can do, we have to accept what those in power are dictating to us. The whole lesson of Tunis and Cairo is that you challenge those who are in a position of power and you can transform reality. I want to say, historically speaking, if you look at all of the democratic struggles that have unfolded on this earth for the past 200 years, let's say, not one happened because those who are in a situation of power said, okay, you can have rights to the people. Not one, ever. Not in France, not in America, not in England, not anywhere. Rights have to be fought for. They have to be fought for against those who have power. If we look back, not to the French Revolution or the American Revolution or the struggle for democratic rights in England in the 19th century, which I can give you a long lecture about because I just finished a book about it. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that, don't worry. If we just look back 20 years, 25 years, our recent, relatively recent history, if you look for the struggle for to end apartheid in South Africa, all of the major powers in the world, the US, the UK, Europe, etc., they were all in favor of maintaining the status quo in South Africa. Not one government, not one global corporation wanted that status quo to change. It changed not just because the black people of South Africa rose up, although they did, and they heroically, but more importantly in many senses, and they themselves will say this if you talk to them, because people of conscience around the world heard what they were saying. 
and they said, we will not let you suffer in silence. We will, we will, and, and, and this is not a, this is not wishy-washy, liberal, whatever. This, this, this sense that we will listen to what people are struggling for, and we will not listen to what our governments are telling us, we will tell our governments what to do. That is what brought about change in South Africa. And that is what is bringing about and will continue to bring about change in Israel and Palestine. It's not going to be the UN. It's not going to be various governments. They will be the last ones to come to the change. It will be normal people of goodwill around the world. And in them, I have no end of hope. Thank you. because I did promise that there would be time to take questions and discussion from you, but I was very loath to cut off any of our speakers uh, who spoke so wonderfully about those, those issues. Um, so I'm sorry, we're w over time, and I don't think that you would regret that we'd have, have had the opportunity to hear from these points of view, or you would wish away what you have just heard in return for your own contributions. So thank you for your forbearance on that. Please come back another time, and I promise I'll somehow get them to talk for a slightly shorter time. <laughs> but uh, I hope you share with me the view that, 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 that it's worth, uh, that what they had to say was very much worth hearing. And, uh, and um, on a rare occasion, I think, expressed by all of our panellists with such power and conviction and so many wonderful ideas. So can you join with me in thanking our panellists today? <laughs>